Hey everyone, welcome to the House Church Podcast. This is Pastor Jamie here. I'm so glad you decided to join us for today's broadcast. Every time we come together as a church, people encounter God. So my prayer is that you too would experience His presence and hear His voice for yourself. Please enjoy today's message. Thanks so much. What a great church. I look forward to this visit every year with anticipation. Uh, my only regret this time is that uh, I'm missing being able to see uh, Pastor Jamie and Nicole and the family. They hold a very dear place in our hearts and um, just uh, are very thankful for the years that we've known each other and the journey that we share. I have a slide that I want you to take a look at. Uh, I just recently completed a e-course that's available online, it's six hours of teaching. This is the first of many to come. This one I call The Challenges of Understanding the Bible. And I chose to title it that because in the 45 years that I've been doing this, I've come to understand that there's so many people, especially those that don't have the opportunity to, to go to a school of ministry or possibly a seminary, they, they struggle with a very difficult language of scripture. And uh, there, I, I put it this way, that, uh, there's a gap in our understanding. We live here in the 21st century and we are now uh, over 2,000 years removed from uh, people of a different culture, spoke a different language, um, the Bible is an Eastern book, it's not a Western book. And so it, it's, it's not a comprehensive study, there will be follow-up to it, but uh, this is just an opportunity for you uh, to see um, or to receive a different way of looking at Scripture. This has always been a great love of mine. And we have one we just finished last Saturday that, uh, it seems like a month ago, it was last Saturday, that's called Discovering and Recovering Your Truest Identity. And before I move on, there's a QR code that gives you, I think, about a 40% 40, 40 discount on this particular course. I think it's about 100 bucks. Uh, they don't tell me. I just, I do the teaching and let them have it from there. But I think that's about a 40% discount if you use that QR code. But as I was about to say before you interrupted me, <laughs> Um, we just filmed one that will be available hopefully between now and the end of the year that's called uh, Discovering and Recovering, Recovering Your Truest Identity. In it, we, we help people make the distinction between uh, what we refer to as their true self and their false self. Uh, this is something that the great Catholic uh, mystic Thomas Merton uh, expanded on in great detail. Uh, but it, it, just to give you a, a little hint of what it's about, uh, have you ever wondered why God ever introduced himself to you to begin with? God introduced himself to you so that he could introduce you to the you he knew you to be before you became the you you think you are. And so it's entirely possible that we can, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, one of the great Scottish theologians, William Barclay, that said, the two greatest days in your life are the day that you were born and the day that you discover why. And I think that's true. Um, we should not live life as if, as if it's a sexually transmitted disease uh, that, um, 
that life is just a sentence that we've all been given to serve. When Jesus said he came, came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, he was not talking about life after life, but life within this life. And so uh, that one is coming forth uh, uh, later this month. I'll be uh, filming one on the topic, and this one you might be interested in. I think a lot of people will be. Uh, it, um, in theological terms, it comes under the category of what's referred to as theodicy. Uh, why, if God is sovereign, why, if God knows all, sees all, does he allow evil to exist in the world? So we will wrestle with the question, is God in control? Most people would emphatically say God is in control, but more than likely, uh, we will challenge some of your thoughts about that. Um, so that's coming forth too. All right, good to see you. Turn to First Peter chapter 4, two uh, readings from First Peter. First Peter chapter 4, and then I'll be reading from chapter 5 as well. I think probably most of you would agree with me that pastors sometimes spend weeks, I was one for almost 30 years, they spend weeks in sermon series that are usually too long and often answering questions that nobody's asking. And I never have been necessarily one that um, feels this, this need to be relevant. I, I think that we should question the truth of relevancy, but not the, tr not the relevancy of truth. And there's a big difference in the two. But, and so I'm not suggesting necessarily that the Bible needs an upgrade, but our understanding needs an upgrade of it. And so I have chosen these two texts today because I feel like they're as relevant as any topic that I can address, especially in uncertain times as we live in right now. The opposite of faith has never been, never been doubt. The opposite of faith has always been certainty. And we are coming into a time, and I'm sure many of you recognize it, where we're wrestling with mystery, we're wrestling with ambiguity, we're wrestling with questions that we're not necessarily getting satisfactory answers to. And unfortunately, some that are tasked with my uh, task, um, their answers are about as satisfying as offering a hungry man a toothpick. So, <laughs> just seeing if you're listening. There was a man and a woman, before I get to the reading, there was a man and a woman uh, married that uh, came upon a real problem in their relationship. It was essentially the anxiety of the wife that was very troubled that if, if uh, she died first, uh, that her husband would remarry. And the reason why that was creating anxiety for her and very problematic is because she thought, well, he'll remarry and when we get to heaven, he'll have two wives. So no amount of convincing calmed her nerves, so they decided to make an appointment with the pastor. They go to see the pastor, explains the dilemma. She says, I'm just very concerned that if I go first, you know, he's going to remarry. We get to heaven, he's going to have two wives. And the pastor did everything he could to reassure her. In heaven, there is no marriage or giving in marriage. You know the, you know the passage. Uh, 
just could not convince her. And so finally, and he's exasperated, and, the, and the, the husband said, I'll make a deal with you. If you die before I do, I'll marry somebody that's not going to heaven. First Peter chapter four, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now in chapter five. Humble yourselves, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I want to talk to you about casting off anxiety. But before we do, it's very important for us to set the context in which Peter writes this letter you will see in the moments that follow that there are a lot of similarities between the environment that Peter is writing in and where we are now. Even though we are 2,000 years removed, there are so many distinct similarities between the Roman government under which he's writing this letter and the governmental systems that we seek to navigate. Peter's in Rome and he's writing to these believers. And they, in chapter one, he describes them as specifically being exiles. And that seems like a misappropriation of the word because they've not been displaced from their country. They're not refugees. They're not exiles in that sense. But it did feel that way. I'm sure that many of you find yourself on any given day feeling like, especially in the various environments you're having to navigate. I feel like an exile here. I don't, I don't really feel like I belong. And that's what Peter is doing. He's writing encouraging words to these believers that are living under a very oppressive empire of Caesar. Now, I, don't, I don't know whether you're familiar with the cult of Caesar that had developed in the early church, but there were these busts of Caesar that were everywhere throughout the empire, especially in the marketplace. And their requirement was, if you went to work, if you went to your shop on any given day, the requirement was for you to offer incense to this bust of Caesar. In fact, there was a rumor that had been floated long before Jesus ever uh, was born in Bethlehem that Caesar had been immaculately conceived. On the coinage of the time, it actually said, you know, like ours is, in God we trust, on the coinage of the time, it said, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. So when Jesus comes along and he begins to preach a gospel, there was already a gospel that was in play before Jesus ever came along. The word gospel is not a word that originated in the community of faith. The word gospel is a word that was used essentially to spread propaganda. So before Jesus ever, that's the reason why his gospel was so subversive in nature. So when Jesus comes along preaching another gospel different than theirs, you can see how subversive it really was. 
So this is, uh, again, the people that he's writing to. Uh, you can imagine uh, the, the environment of these first century believers because they're experiencing intense anxiety. That's the reason why he talks about them casting off anxiety. And as a matter of fact, he refers to suffering in some way or another 17 different times in this short letter. And with that said, you know, we want to seek for some relevance here. Uh, I, I read something this past week that was extremely shocking to me as it relates to this whole idea of anxiety. And that is that the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety that the average psychiatric person had, adult had, in the 1950s. And of course, we know the reason for this because we live in a time, unprecedented time, where we are drowning in a tsunami of information. It's inescapable, it's everywhere. Uh, I mean, think about previous generations did not have this immediate access to real-time news. Information is just bombarding us from every side. And our brains are not just, they're just not wired to process that accurately. Are you with me so far? We're just not hardwired to, to function that way. And fundamentally speaking, this may sound like an oversimplification, but fundamentally speaking, our brains function on a two-channel system of either surviving or thriving. Instinctively, our response in crisis, and some of you with um, background in this area in therapy understand that instinctively our response is either fight or flight. I found it interesting, though, that the survive channel is older and louder. It's an older and louder channel than the thrive. Some, you know, maybe it would offer just a little bit of, of um, levity to you here as we are addressing the topic of, of, of anxiety. And some of the younger people here won't have a clue as to who this individual was, but he was known for his many quips. Yogi Berra just dated myself, didn't I? And he said, the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> and I think that's true. You'll get that on the way home. <laughs> I really believe that the fear of the future or, or what the future hold is relentless, relentlessly attempting to convince us that we might possibly be underestimating it so we can easily cave to the paralysis of, paralysis of overestimating it. And I really don't think that we fear the unknown as much as we fear what we are convinced we think we know about the unknown. I, I saw a meme just the other day that amused me. Uh, as we're nearing the end of the year and the ensuing of a new year, it said, you know, I, I've decided not to buy a planner for next year until I see the trailer. <laughs> So, you know, we, we want to talk about this, the anatomy of anxiety and how that it is airborne, how that it is so palpable and inescapable, it seems, especially in a culture that is moving uh, at the rate of speed that we're moving at. It seems like almost sometimes you get the feeling that you're caught in the torrent, you're caught in the current of a rushing river, and you're trying to find something to grab hold of. And it seems to be taking you where it wants you to go. A few weeks ago, I read about how the, the, the human head weighs somewhere between 5 and 11 pounds. And a recent study suggests that looking down at your cell phone or your smart device uh, 
throughout the day increases that weight from 5 to 11 pounds to almost 40 pounds, which to me reflects the, the gravity of negativity. It's very difficult, isn't it, for us to look up and I know some of you might think that that is just a very trite reference, but I think it's true. There's a conditioning that is taking place that is causing us not to adjust our perspective. The Bible is replete with references to us keeping our heads up. Yeah, and it's, and it's difficult though, again, figuratively or literally, it requires an awareness of this negativity, of gra gravity of negativity. My head will be lifted up above my enemies, the psalmist said. You, O Lord, are shield about me in a glory, and my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Come on, get a little more excited than that. When calamity was on the horizon, Jesus told his disciples, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. I would like to think, because I've referenced so many times, you know, in its specific context, when Paul's writing to Timothy and he's encouraging him who is, is experiencing anxiety himself and he says, God's not giving you the spirit of fear but of love and of power and of a sound mind. On a good day, I would like to think that that's true of me that he's not giving me the spirit of fear, but of love and of power, and I'm reasonably sane. <laughs> but that's not always my reality. Your mind can be your enemy or your friend. You know that. When we talk about having peace of mind, in many ways, that's an oxymoron because when you are at peace, you are seldom in your mind. Seldom are you in your mind. Yeah, the devil, he certainly works hard, and I don't like to give him credit for anything. Quite honestly, most of the stuff that we blame on him has absolutely nothing to do, and he's not even, even, even in your zip code when it's going wrong. Because, but because by human nature, we, are, we have this propensity towards scapegoating. We want to look for something or someone to blame. I'm not saying he's not a real reality. I know what the scripture says, you know, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power and spiritual wickedness and high places. I understand that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We've been made conquerors and on and on and on it goes. Uh, I, you know, I can do all things through Christ. I understand that. But sometimes it seems like the devil is certainly working hard, but my anxiety is working harder than he is. And it is true. I mean, this, is, this bears repeating. It is true. Every problem you ever have, you've always been present, and everywhere you go, you will be there. So how do we learn how to live in an age of anxiety? There's a long poem that, uh, that was compiled into a book by William Auden, uh, in between the First World War and the Second World War that was called the Age of Anxiety. And even then, because there was, you know, there was so, so much uncertainty in the world. And, and you know, we, can't, we cannot process this stuff. I mean, just this past week, 
you know, we were hit with the news of the attacks against Israel. Initially, they were saying there were 30 or 40 dead, and the number now is over 300. And uh, Netanyahu has said that this is going to be a long war. And you say, well, that's 6,000 miles away. Yeah, but it still influences the way we live our lives, doesn't it? So it's at a macro level and a micro level, and you're caught somewhere in between, in the tension in between. And the reason why I feel like this is relevant is because this is what Peter was addressing to believers that were doing their best to thrive and to function in a very oppressive governmental system that control the narrative, that created a dominant narrative and control the narrative. And they were tempted with the same thing that we're tempted with. They were tempted with this feeling that if I somehow am able to put my faith in the system, that it will deliver me. It's the same thing. It's just, you know, it's the same song, just a different verse in a different century. This is in reality what they were dealing with. So I think that probably one of the most radical things that we can do, especially as we are facing our clear and present dangers as they were, because they, you know, they could lose their job, their whole business could be taken away from them. They could be, you know, severely beaten, persecuted, or, or you know, thrown to the lions. Some of you are familiar with first century history. Any of a number of things that could happen to them. And it's, uh, I think something though that is missing there that we hear so much now, especially when things become very threatening, um, Christians of today kind of take on this triumphalism tone. I can do all things through Christ. Greater is he that is in me and I, all that is true. But that's not what they did. And the writer of the book of Acts, Luke said that these people turned their world upside down. How did they do it? Well, in the first wave of revival that took place in the book of Acts and evangelism, it was a very aggressive movement, but then the real growth, the sustainable growth took place not as a result of the brand of evangelism that most of us are accustomed to, which is very persuasive, which is, very, which is presenting a better argument than someone else, and somehow convincing people that coming and accepting Christ gives them a ticket to heaven, and they escape eternal conscious torment. That was not the approach that they took at all. It was a more radical approach. The, the approach that they took in a very uncertain and unstable world, they practice peace. In the first two, 300 years after the ascension of Christ, upwards of 50% of the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, but it was not because of a more persuasive argument that was presented in our brand of evangelism. In fact, I think what they did, which we've been masters at missing the point on this, what they did is that they realized that people did not need to be convinced how lost they were, but how loved they were. Maybe that's a radical approach to take. And that's what they did because it became very attractive to the pagans and I don't, you know, I don't even like the use of that word any more than I like the use of the word that crept into our vocabulary many years ago when we began to colonize this country, calling people savages. But that's another topic. To say that they were pagans just means that they were not followers of Jesus. 
But the thing that was so attractive to them and caused them to approach believers was they recognized their peace. Their economy was shaky. Their economy was about to implode in many ways like it appears ours is on its way to. But it was the peace of these believers that made them attractive. In fact, there was a saying by one of the early church fathers that said, we don't speak great things, we live them. We don't have to, we don't have to further, further polarize people with this triumphal tone. You know, our God is greater than your gods. It's true, but it's gonna be more polarizing than it is making connection with people. I mean, my God, can we stand anything else that is gonna make things more polarized in this country? Remember I told you I wanted to start out by you know, answering questions that people are asking. And I think they were asking these questions and certainly we hear it today. Anxiety doesn't always have to have an object, does it? It, re it really doesn't. We can feel anxious and not know why we're anxious. It sits at a deeper level in your psyche and it takes this grip on you. And I think a lot of times the reason why people are anxious and they don't know why they're anxious is because that is just a symptom of their anger. The first human emotion that you have referenced in the scriptures at least is fear. And fear is the most primal, primary emotion to a human being. And usually what happens is that we have all these symptoms that come from what we fear that keeps us distracted from what the real issue is. Unless I miss my guess, there's a lot of angry people in here this morning. Oh no, you may have learned how to manage it really well. But there, you know, there's a lot of collective anger in here right now. And don't look around. Don't elbow anybody. You probably yelled at your radio this week. You've yelled at your television. The talking heads have you boiling over. What are you angry at? Doest thou well to be angry like he asked Cain when he killed Abel? What are you really afraid of? Maybe, maybe what all this is doing, maybe this airborne anxiety that, that we live and breathe almost every day is more of a gift to us than we realize. Are you sure you said that right? Yeah. Maybe this anxiety is more of a gift to us than we realize because what it is doing, it is revealing to us what we have truly had faith in and what we've trusted in. It's easy to glibly say that I trust in the Lord. It's easy for us to say God is good. And usually when I hear people say that, I know that they're well-intentioned when they say that God is good, they're saying that because things are going relatively good for them right now. But that is his essence, regardless of what your conflicting circumstances are. I'm embarrassed sometimes, much less convicted when I read about these believers in the first century. And, and you know, by the way, I, I, I know sometimes that we can, you know, 
we can get very down on ourselves when we read about the first century believers. We read about what Peter and Paul and John and all these different great apostles, these patriarchs of the faith, what they endured. And you look at yourself and you think, I don't even deserve to call myself a Christian. Am I the only one? I mean, I'll help you. Years ago, um, this is just kind of a sidebar. Years ago, we had a, a missionary that would come in once a year, and he was uh, in Haiti. He left everything, sold everything, moved from uh, New England uh, to Haiti, took his entire family, um, endured great hardship. Um, he, he and his wife both almost died from dengue fever, yellow fever, malaria. They had the whole host of everything that was threatening diseases down there. Long, long story short, he never left. Even when there were military coups, he, he built this thriving ministry that uh, had the first freshwater well in all of Haiti. And um, his vision was to, uh, knowing that you know people perish for a lack of knowledge, and so he wanted to ed educate the young Haitians and create a generation that would eventually not live in ignorance. And he accomplished all that. When I visited the first time, he had 5,000 students in his school. But he started out living in tents and in unbelievable conditions, you know. And so he's, uh, he's at our church one Sunday, and, and he's standing up there, and, you know, here I am, my suit and tie, sitting on the front row in, with my first world problems. And here's this man from the third world. And he's standing up there and he's sharing some of these testimonies. And I'm sitting there imploding. I'm thinking, I don't even deserve when he finishes to walk back up on that platform and stand in the space that man was standing in. And I heard an inward voice. I heard the Lord say to me, you're impressed with the wrong thing, Randall. His name was George Detellis. He said, you're impressed with George. He said, what you need to be impressed with is the grace that I've given George to endure what he's endured. It's a real game changer for me. Because that comparison game, nobody wins at that, do they? So again, you know, when you look at these people that are facing clear and present danger every day, if they don't cooperate with the oppressive system in which they are in, and there is that temptation in place, you know, that is there to put faith in principalities and powers because they control everything we think about our way of life, the economy, the military, the government, all those, all those kinds of things. And we're drowning in that. I mean, have you ever heard of the Global Peace Index? Anybody ever heard of that? The Global Peace Index? This is, this is something that is, is done, I don't know how often, but it's analysis is done of different countries that conclude where... In, you know, in the world, do people have the greatest sense of peace and safety? Uh, we don't rank very high here. We're probably pretty close to someplace like Syria. I don't know the exact numbers on that. But it's true, isn't it? So what, is, what does he say is the answer to our anxiety? If, if it's unavoidable, if it's something that is, you know, is going to be ever-present in an age of anxiety, I think what he is challenging us with is what do we really trust. And the first way that he does it here is he says, humble yourselves. I didn't see this. Maybe some of you students that are far more astute than I am, you saw it a long time ago, but I never saw the connection between humility and casting my cares upon and my anxieties upon the Lord, but they are connected. 
How so? How are they connected? Well, there's not a person in here that has a pulse that doesn't also have an ego, and some of you more healthy than others. And our ego hates to admit being wrong, even if it's to God. Humility brings us face to face with the illusion of control. And I emphasize that control is an illusion. You don't control anything. You didn't control when you were born or who you were born to. You think that you control a lot of what's going on around you. And that is really what is contributing to your anxiety because you're trying to manage your world. Again, I emphasize control is an absolute illusion. And none of us realize how much we have the propensity to be controlling until our anxiety peaks. So what are you controlling? What are you attempting to control? And it's gonna require humility in order for that to be a reality. Humility is a really fascinating word because it's in the same family of words as human, humor, and humus. You know what humus is, don't you? It's deteriorating, decaying matter. Now you guys up here, uh, I, I live in the South, so you're up here 900 miles away from where I live in the, in the great North. And you guys already have a head start on me. I, I, I've been paying attention uh, because we're in this season called fall. Why do we call it fall? Yeah, because the leaves fall, that's right. It, was, it wasn't a trick question. So the, the richness of what comes through the cycles of seasons, you know, let me go back. You know, we did get a little bit of reprieve a few days ago. I, I live in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So, it, I mean, when it gets hot in the summertime, you know, it's hot. And the humidity is usually in the 90s, you know, 95% humidity. I, you know, I take a shower. By the time I get from my front door to my car, I already need another shower. Heavy, the air is heavy, suffocating, the humidity is intense. And sometimes, you know, even though it says, what is it, September 21st, is that the first day of fall? I can't remember, somewhere thereabouts in that neighborhood. Sometimes the calendar doesn't get the memo or the weather doesn't get the memo. And it, and it, and it just continues. But there is one telltale sign, you know, and I, I experienced it just about two weeks ago. And one, one morning I walked out, as soon as I walked out, the heaviness was out of the air. I mean, it was crisp. I felt all of my molecules just beginning to vibrate at a higher level because the heaviness was gone. And I know, like I said, you guys have a head start on this, but what's gonna happen is because this is, this is something that is very helpful for us to understand the different seasons that we're in. This this overarching cycle of death, burial, resurrection, which leads to death, burial, resurrection, which leads to death, burial, resurrection. This is what he said in motion from creation itself. And it is essential 
to the ecosystem. It is essential to the thriving of creation as well as it is essential to your thriving. So what's going to happen is these leaves, you know, I, I have a back porch that, that backs up to the forest and I'm looking at all these leaves that, that are emerald green that have created this canopy uh, there in the, you know, back in the forest that backs up. Well, actually, the swamp backs up to my house, but uh, that's, that's not edifying. <laughs> and alligators and everything else. But anyway, I'm seeing them change. I'm seeing some of them float down. I'm seeing some of them change into these beautiful colors of orange and mauve and yellow, bright yellow. Uh, They have once had life. They are falling. This This is what humility looks like. They are falling and they will decay in the rain and the ice and the change in temperatures and they will become the soil to the next season. That's what humility looks like and that's what ultimately leads us to the point where we can cast our cares upon him. But maybe, maybe there's still some more issues. Like I said, uh, anxiety can be a gift because it reveals to us where our focus is. It reveals to us the pockets of control that still persist in us that are imperceptible until the circumstances are right for them to be made manifest. You know, I think probably this is um, this is a great thinker that I follow that that gave me um, uh, you know I think some very concise maxims that help us to live more in the realm of humility. And he's basically said this. You ready for this? It's not profound, but it, it really is. Even though it's not, doesn't seem profound. He says, "Life is hard. You're not that important." Your life is not about you. You are not in control and you're going to die. (laughs) Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life is not about you. You're not in control and you're going to die. Man, that's morbid. What a downer. No, not at all. Because most of us struggle with this thing of taking, well, maybe it's just me of taking myself far too seriously. Humility is human. It's humor. It's humus. It's all of that bound together, isn't it? And this is the only way, this is is the space, the threshold through which I can cast my cares upon him. My anxieties upon him was when I come to terms with that. Now, I know, and we're coming in for our landing here. I know that when he uses there in verse 7 the word casting, I would like for it to be the exact same word that Jesus used in John 21 when they had been fishing all night long and they'd taken nothing. The irony of that is the first time he met them is they'd fished all night long and had caught nothing. And then his resurrection appearance, it's the same context, isn't it? And Jesus tells them, you know, to cast their nets upon. I wish that was the same Greek word. It's not. But I have this sense that maybe when Peter is making reference to this, because that, that was his occupation prior to him, his encounter with Jesus, is that when he uses this word casting, because you, you don't cast something casually, do you? <laughs> he must be, is it possible that he's thinking about all those many nights 
that he stood on a bow of a boat fishing all night long and throwing this net. The first time he throws it, hurls it. That's what the word cast means. It means to hurl. That when he takes hold of it and with all of the energy that he can summon from the soles of his feet up through his pectoral muscles, he and his biceps, he's throwing it, casting it. First time's not so hard. Second time, though, when he pulls it back in, and it's he- twice as heavy as it was because now it's wet and waterlogged, and he's got to pick all this debris out of it, and he does that repeatedly. Repeatedly, See, I, I think that is an appropriate imagery as to how we deal with anxiety. We just continue to cast it, continue to cast it. Because he says he cares for you. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times in my life that I have railed against God for what I thought was his indifference. Don't you care? Do you, do you see what is happening? Don't tell me you don't act like that, talk like that, think like that. How asinine is that? Don't you see? You know, as if he discovers my dilemmas when they occur. As if prayer is me trying to overcome his reluctance and his indifference and get him to somehow come into and intervene in my situation when in reality Prayer is more about his invitation to you to enter a greater reality than the one that you think is real. That's why sometimes it feels like he's, when you're praying, he's always changing the subject because you're not on the right subject to begin with. (laughs) Have you had that issue? Lord, this is what I need to talk to you about. A lot of times our, our prayers are, are, are not, not very successful, especially as it relates to anxieties because we miss the point in prayer. It, you know, it has nothing to do with us informing God of anything as if he doesn't know until we tell him. Prayer has always been about your formation. Your formation. And not always about you getting information or giving information. It's been about your formation. Because you may be praying about something that is financially related and he wants to talk to you about wisdom. Or you may be praying about somebody that is causing anxiety in your life. Maybe your coworkers or maybe your employer is causing anxiety and you don't realize that he has answered your prayer by sending them into your life to reveal your anxieties as a gift so that you could see that they are the means by which you are to understand how to cast your cares upon him. Oh man, how many people have I, and I know this all too well. I mean, I know what I'm getting ready to say because I've said it before and I'll be tested on it probably before the day's out. Where I have earnestly prayed, Lord, remove this situation, remove this person from my life in the same way that Paul was saying, Lord, this thorn in my flesh. And who were these? 
you know, what was this thorn in his flesh? I don't believe, like many scholars say, that it was, you know, some physical malady that he had. I don't believe that at all. I mean, you look metaphorically at the use of his words there. He's actually talking about the Judaizers. These are the ones that were always mobbing him whenever he was trying to advance the kingdom of God. He was talking about people. You even say that, don't you? Euphemistically, you will say, that person is a thorn in my side. And he is praying in 2 Corinthians, repeatedly to be delivered from it, said, no, Lord. You know, and he said, this, this messenger that has been sent from Satan to buffet me, he's beating the hell out of me. This is basically what he's saying. And the Lord said, no, no, no. You want to be delivered from them? Mm-mm, it's a gift. Because my weakness, your, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And my grace is sufficient. Because Paul, I want you to understand every problem that comes your way, I don't intend for you to solve it. I want you to outgrow it. But I gotta be convinced that he cares for me even though it seems that he's indifferent, which is ridiculous. And it is not going to be something that is gonna be one singular act, but is a continual thing that requires intentionality that brings you to the point of total surrender, which by the way, many of you probably, uh, whenever you accepted the invitation to give your life to Christ, I surrender all might've been playing in the background. You're crying. I'm not making fun. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) I surrender all. You had absolutely no idea what you were saying. Really? All? And of course, in our individualistic, ego-driven culture, surrender, just the mere mention of the word, surrender, the connotation of his weakness. What a tragedy that is. Because it takes more strength, listen, it takes more strength and more energy than to surrender than it does to try to struggle against it. I know some of you are already thinking, you're you're a smart bunch. Doesn't he also say in the next verse, resist the devil. How many of you have heard that one? As if it has everything in the world to do with my resilience and my ability to resist. Come on. If you think that your faith is failing right now, your faith isn't failing. It's your focus that has failed you. Because your faith has been to be somewhat self-absorbed, wanting to get the results that you think that will validate what you're going through. I have faith and trust in him. God is not under any obligation to explain the many conundrums in my life. As a matter of fact, if he explained with great clarity to my satisfaction, I still wouldn't be satisfied. If you'll just tell me why. No, you don't want to know that. It's above your pay grade. 
and it will frustrate you more. I am what I am by the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. You are too. The strongest thing, the strongest thing that many of you could do right now is learn how to surrender again. To pick up that net that I described earlier and just cast it out there into the depth of his mystery. Cast all those anxieties on him. Because he cares. You think you care more about it than he cares about it. And the truth is, is God is more present to you. God is more conscious of you than you are conscious of yourself. Everybody take a deep breath. Just now, unaware of it, and you do it all, you do it to survive, right? Inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. Now you're more aware of it. You can feel it, right? That's the animating force of the universe. And the animating force of the universe took the first breath in a garden. The first breath ever taken on this planet was not taken by Adam, but the first breath that was ever taken on this planet was taken by God when he breathed into him. One of the things I love about that, let everything that hath, what? I mean, how, how many of you found yourself in the course of any given day, and you don't, you don't even realize when it's happening because anxiety is at such a subliminal level, you do this. Anybody? Well, I've caught myself doing that in the last few days. Just, and in that moment, I realized, okay, what am I carrying here? And my body is involuntarily, because your body always keeps the score. My body is involuntarily, it's bypassing my mind, my intellect, it's bypassing all those kinds of things and basically saying, we need to get some air in here we, we need to get some fresh breath in here because the word worry and anxiety, I didn't even get to this part, has to do with choking or asphyxiating. And you go right back out there and you will breathe the toxic beliefs, the toxic attitudes, that atmosphere out there. That's why you come home and you go, I think that is true, of course. Go ahead and stand. I think it's true, of course, with the, with the corporate man, not just with us individually, but with his body. I think, I th you know what? <laughs> as simple as it is, I, I think if, if the Lord had anything to say to us right now, he'd just say, take a breath. Just breathe. You never have been in control of it anyway. Be a human. Laugh at yourself. Die and decay so that you can feed another season. <laughs> 
So it's not about what happens at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or the Capitol. I'm not, I, listen, I'm not in denial. I'm just trying to help you to understand. Either we are, you know, most of us are practical atheists anyway. Either I believe what I just read or I don't. And if I don't, I need to shut up and go home. So Father, these wonderful sons and daughters in this room, I ask that you would give them the grace that is necessary to cast it off this morning and to continue to cast it off. Because they're not going to be able to avoid it as sure as they cast it there'll be another opportunity. I ask that you'd help them to understand that humility really is what you said that we need to learn. Come into me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. I ask for that grace to come this morning, to sweep all across this room, whatever level of anxiety they're dealing with, grant that grace to them now in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. It's our hope that God touched your life in a truly meaningful way. And if you were impacted, please let us know by writing a review or share it with friends. If you'd like more information on The House Church, we would love to connect you with our community please visit us at ithehouse.org for more information. We'll see you next week.